for episode 69 of the Barnhart Podcast, we are going to break format a little bit. This is one of our In the Can episodes, which was recorded August 25th, 2018, but is being released on December 14th. Enjoy. Well, on the Ask Ann Anything series of, of questions that we put out saying, we're going to do a series of podcasts where Ann answers questions. Far and away, the number one grouping theme of questions was asking Ann about her experiences, uh, religiously speaking, what her religious experience was like growing up, how religious was her family, what was her conversion experience. So this episode is entirely dedicated to, I'm tongue-in-cheek calling it the spiritual journey of Ann Barnhart. And so let's start back at the beginning. And what was your religious upbringing like? How serious was it? Um, not um, very Protestant. Um, most of the people that I'm related to, to my knowledge, um, are atheists. Um, so German, half bloodwise, half German Protestant, half English Protestant. So the way that all translated into the United States as people migrated over is that the the English side ended up up in New England, in Massachusetts, et cetera, and became uh, what's called congregationalists, the congregational church. Um, every every congregation is its own basically independent thing with its own pope and da-da-da-da-da, completely independent churches. I say its own pope, da-da-da-da-da, tongue-in-cheek. Obviously, these are... These are very, very, very Protestant Protestants. And then on the German side, again, just kind of not not really anything German Black Forest Protestants um, who made their way over into the U.S. Um, a few people on the German side uh, would and ended up going to Methodist churches just because it was, I think Methodism was probably the most vanilla flavor and the most common thing um, that you would find in, in, especially in the central U.S., you know, during the, the 20th century, the first half of the 20th century and into the middle of the 20th century, the most vanilla flavor pretty much was the Methodist church. So there were some people who were making appearances at, at Methodist churches. Nobody, nobody that I'm related to um, that, that I have any knowledge of whatsoever was in any way a, what could be called a devout anything. Um, in fact, a lot of the people that I am related to, and most of them are dead now, but in conversations that I, that I had, and, and to my knowledge, again, for any relations of mine that are still alive, I I don't know what's going on with them today. But in conversations that I had, atheism was openly confessed and discussed. Um, so was drug as a child to what was called the United Church of Christ, which still is in existence. It is the most liberal uh, Protestant denomination that there is that still dares to call itself Christian, basically. Wait, wait, um, did, if you, don't the Unitarians call themselves Christians? Well, I, that that's just what I was going to say. The next step out of the United Church of Christ is the Unitarians, and they 
I, I, I don't know what would you I don't think that they would that they would staunchly confess to being Christian. I mean, they have that's their shtick is that there's if you're Buddhist, you can go to the Unitarian Church. If you're if you're um, Baha'i or whatever, you can go to the Unitarian Church. If you're if you're an atheist, you can go to the Unitarian Church if you just want to socialize and, you know, meditate and and narcissistically navel gaze upon yourself, whatever. Um, I think the United Church of Christ is as far left and far afield as you can go while still professing or calling calling themselves Christian. Now, to make a precision, when I was a little bitty kid and I and I was being taken to this church and as a child, you know, being drugged to meetings and so forth where I was sitting and listening to the adults sit around and talk, what what became very clear is that this was this was the church that people in the, in the town would go to if they were atheist or if they just they had to be seen going to church so i'm born i'm born in october of 76 so if you think about middle america small town america in the late 1970s the early 1980s um there was still very much a cultural expectation um, that, that people, especially people who are active in the community, business owners, et cetera, et cetera, that you had to be seen going to church on Sunday. You had to be seen going to church. Even if you're a total atheist, you don't believe any of it. If you want to be a quote unquote pillar of the community, you've got to be seen going to church. This church that I was taken to, there were a lot of atheists that went to that church. And I, and there were some absolutely lovely people too that went there. And, you know, I wish I could, I wish I could name names and, and think about all of the, the very, very nice, very kind people that, and it was a tiny little church. I mean, big, big attendance on a Sunday was 60, I think. And, you know, that was always one of the big activities was to count and see how many people were there. Um, but a lot of the people that were there were atheists and were there precisely because there was nothing confrontational. Um, there was no talk about sin. There was no talk about Jesus. Everything was very benign, non-confrontational, bland, bland, bland. I have absolute confirmation of this because when I was a little kid, this would have been in about, oh, I don't know, like 83 or so, probably 83 or maybe 84 they were between um, ministers. They were between pastors. And so they formed a search committee. I get drugged to one of these search committee meetings. They've just had, I think, a month where each Sunday they had a different uh, minister come in who was essentially auditioning for the job. And so I get drugged to this search committee meeting. So this is 1983. So I'm either I'm either six or seven. And, you know, I'm told to go and sit over, sit over yonder and, and color or read my book or whatever it was. And the adults are sitting at the table having their search committee meeting. And one of them, the, the minister that I actually, as a child, liked the best because he gave a really, uh, he was kind of yelling during a sermon. He gave a really, uh, he gave a fiery sermon. And then again, you just never saw anything like that in this church. I kind of liked him because he was, he was exciting. You know? <laughs> and his name came up and one of the men at the table um, said, no, I don't like him. He, he talked about Jesus way too much. And seriously, that's what was said. 
Um, and that, that was normal. That's what these people wanted. Most of them were atheists. They just wanted something completely non-confrontational. Um, I tell the story when I was 10 years old in Sunday school at this church, um, the woman who was teaching the, the group of us girls, and I was the youngest one and the other girls were about four years older than I. So I was about 10 and they were in, they were in junior high. So it was me and this group of probably five other girls who were in junior high. And I remember very, I remember this vividly. We were sitting back in the, our little Sunday school classroom was actually in the storage room. They had set up a table in the storage room. And so we're sitting in there and the Sunday school teacher who was the woman who was also the choir director of the church proceeded to tell us that there was actually no such person as Jesus of Nazareth, that this is all a fiction, that this was all a fictional construct that was cooked up in the Middle Ages in order to flesh out a philosophy and to exert political power. That was Sunday school. That That's what I was exposed to as a child. And, you know, I... It's it's a it's truly a testament to to grace that I never believed any of that. I knew I knew that our Lord was real. I knew He was a real person. I knew He was God. Um, I remember being as a as a pretty darn young little kid having that light bulb go on over your head that 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 yes this this guy Jesus that we see these pictures of and so forth. He he's different. He he is in fact God. Jesus is God. And I don't remember exactly what it was what the circumstance was that that caused that light bulb to go on over my head, but I do remember as a child, a, a fairly young child, that that distinction was was pretty solid in my mind that Jesus was in fact God. Um so again, just a little little, little in quotes, just a little point of, of grace, I think that was, that was clearly tunneling through. Um, and so that was, that was the, the, the church upbringing. I stopped going. I mean, obviously that deal where the Sunday school teacher told us that there was no such person as Jesus and it was all made up. Um, I was 10 when that happened. And I think I, I think I stopped going permanently when I was probably about 12. I just said ah, that this is enough of this. But, you know, it was a it was a typical American um, situation in terms of, of course, celebrating uh, Christmas and celebrating Easter and all those sorts of things at home. But it was just it was just as so many people are today they were just it was just going through the motions and participating in these in these holidays and in these rituals but there was there was not very much behind it at all religiously um neither parent you know one parent is atheist one parent is kind of pantheist kind of drifts all over the place but all the conversations I had with the pantheist parent revolved around how some Einsteinian theory that the universe is itself God and the universe is itself sentient or something like that. Just just goofy, at, at least thinking about it, at least trying to think about it. But uh, obviously way, way, way off base and not not living lives that are in any way in that are not in accord with, you know, good Christian living at all. So between uh -huh. about the age of 12 and you said you stopped uh, attending this 
shall we say, faux Christian church. Yeah. Between then and uh, let's just make the next arbitrary marker when you when you go to college, was there any kind of spiritual life or anything that kind of kept your spark of, of Christianity or interest in Jesus going? Yes. Um, I, I, fl- I started, I became politically conservative and started listening to Rush Limbaugh when I was about, uh, let me think, probably 14, I would have, to, I would guess. So turning politically conservative and also what was kind of instrumental in that also as a, as a teenager, 14, 15 was, um, real realizing and, and denying and refuting evolution. That was, um, with the people that I was hanging out with and working with that evolution tended to be a a topic of conversation and, you know, saying, look at this, this is clearly wrong. Talking about the societal damage that it had done. So, there, there was that. Then when I was 17, yeah, when I was 17, I decided that what I needed to do was I needed to read the Bible. I needed to, I needed to read it cover to cover. And so when I was 17, what I started doing is every night before I went to bed, I would read two chapters. And I started at Genesis 1. So night one, I read Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And then said my prayers and went to sleep. And the next night, Genesis 3 and Genesis 4. And if you do that, if I'm not mistaken, if I remember correctly, it takes 20 months to read the Bible cover to cover. Now, a precision I have to make, understand I'm reading a Protestant Bible. So I'm missing seven books there and, you know, big chunks added added Daniel. You're, you're You're missing six books there. Sick? I thought it was seven. I thought there's seven in the seventy two book. Well, okay. There's some there's some debate upon whether or not Jeremiah and Lamentations is two different books. Oh, okay. Okay. All right. So you're missing the apocrypha, long story short. Um, and you're missing like the story of Susanna in in the book of Daniel and the the passage about Bell, I believe, is taken out of Protestant Bibles in the book of Daniel. So you're missing stuff there. Um, but reading my my Protestant Bible that I had, um, 20 months cover to cover. And then I just kept doing that. So when I finished, when I finished the Bible the first time, you know, it had become a, a ritual in my life to be doing this. So I just went back to the beginning and started over again. And over the next several years, over the course of the next years, which takes me all the way through college and into moving to Denver and starting my job, I read the Bible cover to cover four times like that, two chapters at a time. So that was a connection that that kept me engaged. And I do want to mention one thing that um, kind of came to my attention and um, with just within the last few years. And the more I think about it, the more I think it's the more I think it really is important. And it really was a conduit of grace where the apartment complex that I lived in when I was a kid um, was an old house that had started out as a farmhouse and then was turned into an orphanage. Um, and it was, it was an orphanage run by a group of nuns that came to Kansas from, I think, Pennsylvania or something like that. And this orphanage was specifically for black boys. So I'm living in this Catholic orphanage and my, where my sleeping quarters and where I live, this is where 
all of these nuns and these little boys lived in this old farmhouse as an orphanage. And I remember being told that there was, in fact, a chapel on the grounds of this orphanage, which indicates that the holy sacrifice of the mass was offered on this property in the house somewhere. Don't know where because it was all completely remodeled and turned into apartments in the um, after the war. But um, so I'm living in a house where the holy sacrifice was offered and and the the blessed sacrament might have even been reposed. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. But if there was a chapel, that means the the mass was offered there. Then what happened a few years ago is the elementary school that I went to um, was purchased by the Catholic schools in the town. This just happened a few years ago. So they buy the elementary school that I went to for from kindergarten through sixth grade as a kid. They remodeled the whole thing and turned the library of the elementary school that I went to into a chapel where presumably mass is offered and the blessed sacrament is reposed. So I'm bookended in time and space <laughs> and don't don't crack a joke about time being greater than space or space being greater than time, whatever that nonsense is that Bergoglio is always talking about. No, I'm I'm bookended in time and space where I lived as a kid, there was a chapel there in the building, and where I went to elementary school um, in the future would become a, a chapel where the Blessed Sacrament was reposed. So knowing and understanding that God exists outside of time and he is not limited by time and all these things you know, transcend, certainly, I just find it very interesting to realize how... how physically, physically connected in a sense I was all during my childhood, completely unbeknownst to me, not understanding any of this, that the blessed sacrament and the offering of the mass was, was physically, I was just surrounded by that all the time, nearly all the time. So that's a, I think that's just a pretty interesting thing. Well, you mentioned that while you were in college, you continued the practice of reading two chapters of the Bible every day. Were there yeah. any other spiritual practices you did while you were in college, which sustained your faith as you knew it at the time? Uh, just praying, it said said my nighttime prayers um, actually prostrated. I would almost always say my prayers prostrate um, at night. And what's interesting is during college, I was I was pitched by almost everyone. I lived next door to a Mormon house. So they were the Mormons were constantly around um, in Manhattan, Kansas at K-State was pitched by them. And of course, had figured out that that was abject insanity a long time ago. Um ended up one of my professors was is one of these people that's called just kind of a perpetual searcher who just every year it seems like almost every year he would be changing churches and you know was went to some of the really painful um ad hoc do it yourself church in the hotel ballroom and just you know praise and praise and worship and hand waving and all that crap and you know the the joke i made is that i was pretty much pitched by everyone including you know the snake handlers and and everyone else the only people that i was never pitched by 
and who I had never really, I had, I had been in a church for a mass once as a kid. And then I'd been to a couple of Catholic weddings, but I don't think they were, I don't think they were masses. I think it was just a wedding, but it was inside a Catholic church. Well, I find, I find this very interesting because you were, see, this would have been the mid nineties. You were just 20 minutes down the road from two different Latin mass communities. Yep. Yeah. Oh, I drove through St. Mary's all the time, drove through St. Mary's, Kansas all the time, knew, um, knew the story about there were crazy people there and they would shoot at each other and have wars. And the thing that was really interesting about St. Mary's is you would drive through town, you could look to the north, look on the north side of the road, and you could see this, this big, pretty good sized church, um, in ruins It had collapsed. Um, they kept trying to build and rebuild. And then this is the SSPX we're talking about. They kept trying to build and rebuild this church. And apparently it would just, you know, every time they'd get some progress done on it and get walls erected or whatever, some huge storm would blow in and, and blow the whole thing down until they finally just gave up and they quit. So I don't know if it's still standing there. I don't know if that ruined church is still standing there, but the whole time I was in college. Oh yeah. I mean, every time you drive east out of Manhattan, pretty much you're driving, you're driving through, um, St. Mary's cause St. Mary's is halfway between Manhattan and Topeka. So, well, okay. Yeah, so the, the actual history there is that the chapel was intact when the SSPX bought it okay. and there was an electrical fire in 1978, pretty much burned it to the ground. And mm-hmm. there were there were definitely some cleanup efforts that happened throughout the years. There was never a conscious attempt to rebuild anything that fell down. Oh, um, there were, okay. there was as part of a a cleanup effort to try to prepare the grounds to do a rebuilding. They tore down some of the structurally inadequate stuff that was around. So mm-hmm. the, it, from the perspective of of somebody driving by on U.S. Highway 24, passing through Saint Mary's. If you look to the north, yes, from from one week to to the next, there may have been some indication that things got torn down or built up from time to time. Mm-hmm. That was never really uh, a failed attempt to rebuild. It was always going to be a project that took eight figures of revenue to be able to pull off. And to this day, they still have not raised the money for that. And, and there are some other engineering concerns that go back to you know just just the layout of the land around there. And um, I'm betraying the fact that I know a whole lot about St. Mary's and the buildings around there, but that's okay. And is it in St. Mary's, they get this SSPX, they have mass at that limestone church that's on the south side of the road right there on 24. That's their church, right? False. That is that is the diocesan church for Kansas City, uh, Kansas Diocese. Yeah. No, the, the that's, SSPX. That's in Nova Sordo? Yes, it is. The SSPX oh. is all on the north side of the street. Okay. All right. Gotcha. I, again, did not know that. Boy, how awful would that be to be the Nova Sordo priest assigned to St. Mary's, Kansas? <laughs> that's just got to be... <laughs> my gall- my gallows humor is showing here. That's got to be bad. <laughs> I hear it's pretty entertaining, actually. Well, it it would be fun. It would never be a boring day. I'll tell you that. So, yes, when I'm in college, pitched by everyone and went to a few things and was just just completely skeptical of of all of it. Um, 
you know, skeptical of organized religion in total. You know, I'd been I had been scandalized like everyone else was scandalized. I mean, you look at all of the all of the TV televangelists and that's that's all a scandal. Um, they're all con artists and psychopaths, and it's obvious that they're con artists and psychopaths. So you're scandalized by that, scandalized by the the basically the mendacity of what I grew up in of these people going to church, but just going there to to be seen going to church, but being fairly openly confessing atheists. A lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them. That is a profound scandal. Like, why, why would I want? I don't, I'm not a fake. I don't want to be fake. I don't want to be phony. I don't want. I don't want to live a lie. I mean, even as a child, um, you know, there was, there was this sense of you got to have some integrity about yourself. You know, you can't, you can't just be a complete phony like this. So scandalized by that, then you go to, you know, Protestant church in the hotel ballroom, and it's just. It's just so, it's so pathetic. It, it really is pathetic. Um, and then, even though I'd never been um, pitched by Catholics, the thing I knew about Catholicism as a kid, what I knew about Catholicism, was for some bizarre reason, these people had, did communion every Sunday. And that, that was just crazy. I mean, it was only done... Um, you know, fake communion was done in the the United Church of Christ church that I went to as a child, like three times a year, maybe, maybe. Um, but the oh, the Catholics they do it they do it every Sunday. That was crazy. And the other thing I knew about Catholics when I when I was a kid was that they wore jeans to church, and that's what I knew about Catholicism. They did communion every Sunday and they wore jeans to church, dude. I mean, even in the fake you know, half, half filled with atheists, German congregationalist, Protestant, super far left church that I went to, you, you wore your Sunday best on Sunday morning. I mean, you wore a dress and men were in, in suits or jacket and tie. I mean, everybody was in jacket and tie and, and all the women were in dresses or skirts and you wore your Sunday best on Sunday and what Catholics wear jeans to church, whatever, you know? Well, obviously your, your idea of Catholicism and your, your understanding of it at the time was quite different than mine because um, I, I grew up in a, a place in time where we really did wear our Sunday best and um, tend to, we're recording this on August 25th. I have no idea when it's going to actually be published, but 10 days ago, uh, obviously the, the Feast of the Assumption, wear a suit and a tie to Mass in the morning and uh, was planning on wearing that to work as well, except that I realized between after Mass and getting into my car that I'd actually popped a button off my suit. So I changed into a polo. But the, the, the goal was that my plan was to actually wear my Sunday best to work, which, of course, you know, as a programmer, everyone's going to say, where are you interviewing? But uh, yeah, right. <laughs> it's interesting you say that with regard to you know, your your impression of Catholics at the time. It makes me wonder if we can play some uh, time warp um, games here. Imagine for a moment that you were going to college now and seeing all of this stuff about the Catholic Church and the, the scandals do you think that you ever would have had the opportunity to, or the grace or would have responded with the grace to become Catholic if this was in the news at the time? I mean, it, there, there were certainly strange things in the news. I mean, you were, you grew up near St. Mary's and you knew about the, the trads literally shooting at each other. And that, that is actually true, by the way, I 
I, I, I know that area, but yeah. I didn't, I didn't know they were trads per se. I didn't understand the distinction at all. And when I was in college, I did know there was, there was even then the sense that many, 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 many Catholic priests were homosexuals. Um, yeah. So that, that was, it, it's, I, I knew that there was an infestation of sodomites in the Catholic church when I converted, um, which is 11 years ago now. I knew, I knew it, but it, yeah, again, grace, you're able to get around it. And, and I converted into the Novus Ordo. Again, the, the Modu Proprio, Samorum Pontificum was issued just a few weeks after I entered the church. And so I didn't, go to my first old mass then until after Samorum Pontificum. Not that there wasn't the old mass in Denver. I just wasn't, I just wasn't aware. It, it wasn't on my radar at all. Um, and so, yeah. Um, so pitched by everybody in college, scandalized. Oh, and the other thing is that, you know, in conversations that I would have with, you know, get, get together a family reunions and reunions and stuff like that. I remember a couple of times the issue coming up that, um, some of, some of my family members didn't, didn't want to do business with Catholics because Catholics would screw you nine ways from Sunday. And then all they have to do is go to the confessional is just go, go to the confessional and say, he, he, I'm sorry. Or, you know, be, sleeping around or raging alcoholic drunks, whatever. And that's okay. You can just go to, you just go to confession. Oops, sorry. Mm -hmm. And then out of the confessional and back into being dishonest in business and dishonest in life. So there was also that, that scandal of just, you know, how, how sadly a lot of, a lot of Catholics have operated over the years. It reminds me, it reminds me of the Bishop Sheen quote that uh, Mr. Business uh, went to mass. He never missed a Sunday. Mr. Business went to hell for what he did on Monday. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. And again, you can tell it's kind of dating the whole thing a little bit because now Catholics just don't go to confession at all. This is what, what my relations who are all older than me, what they were referencing is kind is a, um, early to mid 20th century Catholicism. And then the immediate, you know, the immediate 10, 15 years after the asteroid hits in the mid 1960s, um, where, where that presumption upon God's mercy and this just evil abuse of the sacrament of confession, um, was something that was publicly visible to people, to people, just in the community, people knew that that people were doing this and presuming upon God's mercy and abusing the sacrament of confession, um, and so that that's a profound scandal as well. So there was there was quite a lot of scandal, but um, so now getting where am I? I'm in well, college. Hold on, I, I want to interject one point real quick. It, yeah. It's always it's always a challenge to live in a way that you are in the world but not of the world, and I have justifiably taken reproach from a couple of coworkers in the past, one who I think is from Lebanon, to be honest, and he's Greek Catholic. And he did not realize that I was Catholic until he saw an icon on my desk one day and, and, and started asking me, he's like, are you really Catholic? And I realized why he said that. And it was a very justified reproach. I mean, honestly, I talked more like I came out of the Navy than out of the Catholic church. Uh, at that job. And, and it was something that I, I took very seriously. And it's like, okay, I, I realized, okay, what kind of a Catholic am I if 
the casual observer who happens to be serious about his faith but not Catholic concludes that this guy isn't serious about any kind of religion because he doesn't talk like it. And I realize I'm, I'm not doing a very good job of it. So it's not that I'm <laughs> I'm not holding myself up as an example of anything other than to real other than to say that it, it's a challenge we all face. And and uh, sometimes when you're in your daily life outside of church, sometimes you forget about it. And you're supposed to live in a way that everyone can clearly tell that you are at least serious about being like Christ or Christian or, or seriously religious about something. And and I haven't always lived up to that. And it's, you know, to my shame. But uh, going to uh, af- after college, and, and okay, there, could, there could be so, a whole question about how you ended up in Denver, but let's just leave that for, for another time, maybe a Financial Friday type kind of thing. At some point while you were in Denver, still presumably reading two chapters of Bible per night, at some point in your readings and in your influences, something plants the seed that you need to start paying attention to or thinking about the Catholic faith. What was that? Well, it's, it, I went from, and I, I, I can tell you exactly what happened. I'm reading the Bible two chapters a night. Um, and long story short, I have really, um, really bad malocluded teeth run in my family. So I had braces on and off for like 15 years. So the first two rounds of braces that I had didn't do the trick because they should have pulled teeth out of, they should have pulled, um, they should have pulled teeth, one from each quad, one from each quadrant. Believe me, this is a weird tangent, but it has a, it has a point. They should have pulled teeth out and then that would have given room inside my mouth to push my teeth back into my mouth and the braces thing would have worked a whole lot better. We would do the braces, the braces would come off, and then what all the braces had done is they had basically like spring-loaded my teeth back into my mouth, and then as soon as they would take the braces off, my teeth would snap back out. And so I I had had two rounds of braces already by the time I graduated from college and moved to Denver. So here I am in Denver, I've got health insurance, I got a little money in the bank account because I got a job. And I say, all right, I, I, I need to find the best orthodontist in Denver. And I need to go and say, look, I want, I want to do this and I want this to be done right. I don't want this to happen again. So I, grace of God, I found the best orthodontist in Denver. And he, you know, does the initial examination and he, you know, calls me back into his office and sits down. In fact, I, he did, he did the examination, took x-rays, and then I came back for the, the conversational consultation appointment. And he sits me down in his office. He's a really nice guy, really, really nice guy. And says, look, you're a pretty girl, but you're not nearly as pretty as you should be. And in order to make you as pretty as you should be, we need to pull some teeth out of your head because there's not even remotely enough room inside of your mouth for all of your teeth. That's why your teeth keep sm- snapping back out. And I was like, oh my gosh, this dude is for real. This is a straight talker. This is a straight shooter. I like this guy. Yes, I'm on board. Turns out most orthodontists absolutely refuse to pull teeth out of children, even if the children desperately need it, because the stupid mothers will hear the will hear the orthodontist say pull teeth and they will go absolutely berserk and storm out. And the orthodontists have lost a client. And so the orthodontists have all learned 
no matter what, you don't pull teeth out of a kid, even if the, the child desperately needs to have teeth pulled like I did. So, and he said, I, I'm just, I'm just not like that. I have to tell you the truth. This is the truth. If you don't want to have any of your teeth pulled, that's, that's completely up to you, but I can't be your orthodontist because I'm not going to just, I'm not going to spring load your teeth, your teeth back into your head like that again. I'm not going to do that to you again. And I was like, oh, I like this guy. This guy's awesome. So I go and I start the final and the excellent course of treatment with this orthodontist. So we're gone. And, you know, I'm, I'm one of his few adult clients. Most of his clients obviously are kids, you know, as, as it is in an orthodontist's office. And we start talking and he's a Christian and he, he's asking me, pitching me, asking me about, you know, what, where I am in terms of my faith and all of that. And I tell him, well, I'm, I'm just off of, of all organized religion. I just do at home Bible study. And I tell him about my two chapters a night. And at this point I've already been through the, I've been through the Bible at least twice, if not three times at this point. And he gives me the next time after we have one of these conversations, the next month I come in for my appointment, my appointment and lo and behold, what does he have for me? He says, I have a gift for you. And he hands me CS Lewis, mere Christianity. So my orthodontist in Denver was the point of departure from going from just this reading two chapters uh, a night of the Bible to now reading Christian apologetics. So you start with Lewis, who was a, who of course died Anglican, um, but Lewis is good reading. Lewis is good reading as long as you understand that he he married a divorced Jewish woman and died an Anglican. And I he gave many indications that he didn't believe in the real presence of the Eucharist or was just one of those things that it kind of weirded him out. So he didn't want to think about it. I think one of the things one of the quotes um, of Lewis about the Eucharist is our Lord said, take and eat, not take and understand, which is kind of a cop-out. It's really a cop-out. Um, so yes, Lewis has, has those problems, but do, do we recommend, especially to someone just starting out to read mere Christianity? Absolutely. We do. Absolutely. We do. So I started with mere Christianity that then led to Chesterton. Okay. Now you're into Catholicism because now you're into Chesterton. And then that just, that started a tidal wave of, of reading that just went on and on and on for years and years and years and years. And it wasn't too long, obviously, before I'm into, you know, pretty, pretty hardcore, um, Catholic apologetics, um, Carl Keating's book, um, fun fundamentalism, um, that, that was great. I mean, if you're, if you're starting from scratch in terms of Catholicism, all these titles, the whole Scott, Scott Hahn oeuvre, I read the whole Scott Hahn oeuvre. Um, I was going to say, uh, there was a coworker of mine back in the early 2000s, somewhere 2005 ish, um, Jewish lady, awesome coworker, um, grandma age type type thing uh but but uh i just i i had talked to her somewhat about catholicism 
and um, I ended up working for another company for a few years and then came back to that company and she became Catholic. And, and one of the precipitating uh, influences was Scott Hahn's books. Somebody gave her that and, well, that and, and her husband, um, who used to be, I wouldn't say tried Catholic because back at the time, it, this was before Vatican II. So yeah. he, he remembers what the church was like back then. So yeah. it's it, a combination of influences, but he, she said Scott Hahn was was his writings were the big influence that she said, okay, I got to become Catholic. Yeah, because Scott Hahn is specifically writing towards Protestants who are who are Bible literate, um, and he is just holding your little hand and tiptoeing you, you know, gently taking you into the nice the nice warm bathtub, you know, and it's the books are quick reads. I mean, there's something that you sit down and you read in one sitting, basically, um, maybe two. Easy, easy to read. He's a good writer. He's he makes funny puns and things like that. Um, and I cannot understand for the life of me why Scott Hahn hasn't tratted. I don't get it because he's his strength. And what really struck a chord with me is Scott Hahn, his conversion all revolved around realizing you know, what, what the old covenant was and what all of that old Testament liturgical stuff was, was directly the direct antecedent to the holy sacrifice of the mass. And so there was that recognition of, you know, as a me, as a kid and, you know, going through college when I was in my two chapters a night phase, I mean, I read every word, all of the all the Old Testament, all of the um, the genealogical books, but especially in in the Torah, you read all of these liturgical instructions that are just hyper detailed about you will do this and it will be exactly this long and it will be exactly this wide and it will be decorated with X, Y, and Z and you will do this and you will do that. I mean, just super, super detailed stuff. And see, this is, this is what always rubbed me the wrong way about all of this Protestantism that I saw, um, you know, through my childhood. And then especially during, during the K state years, when you're going to the ad hoc, um, charismatic hand waving group in the hotel ballroom is that, you know, okay, I've read the Old Testament, you've read all of these stories, which are historically true events that happened, you know, pillar of fire, pillar of cloud, leading, leading Israel hither and yon, parting of the Red Sea, all of this stuff, you know, Joshua fit the battle of Jericho, et cetera, et cetera. And then you look at this banality in in Protestantism and you and you just ask yourself, are are you kidding me? So all this stuff that happened in the Old Testament, it's it's perfected conclusion, basically, is us sitting in this hotel ballroom, people waving their hands while this just exquisitely terrible music is being played off of a cassette tape out of a boom box. And then some, some guy or some chick stands up and talks for 40 minutes about absolutely nothing. 
And then we sing another exquisitely terrible song again. Or in my case, you just sit there in awkward silence because I'm not a big singer. And it, it, th this is it? Really? This is what all of that Old Testament stuff was driving towards? That makes no sense. It makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. Building temples and... Uh, just all of this stuff going on. And then never mind, never mind the incarnation, our Lord's passion, death and resurrection, the, the lives and the, and of, of the apostles, all of whom are martyred. And, and you're telling me that it's so we could come here and sit in this hotel ballroom and, and do this joke or go to super fun rock band church, which is a joke or or anything else or even even go to a you know mid-level or even liturgically high and i'll put that in quotation marks like a, a high methodist sunday service still what the hell are we doing what the hell's going on here okay you know guy in robe comes in hymns are sung very very badly um Scripture reading, scripture reading, a uh, 30-minute sermon, which is the same every week, sing another hymn, leave. What, what, what just happened there? And what, what it was, and I couldn't, I didn't understand, I didn't grasp it, I didn't make the connection until I started reading Catholic apologetics, that what was missing was a sacrifice. If you have a religion that does not have any sacrifice, that religion is, I mean, there's only one true religion, obviously, but the, the essence of worship is sacrifice. The essence of worship is sacrifice. Where's the sacrifice? What are we doing here? And that's that was the connection that I didn't make, even though I had read the Old Testament, and it's all of these animal sacrifices. And obviously the prefiguring, the, the uh, frankly, traumatizing event of Abraham and Isaac and all of that. Um, the motif, I mean, the sacrifice is there and our Lord's death on the cross, obviously a sacrifice, but you know what? If nobody explains this to you ever, and all you've seen is this banal Protestant and even today, super fun rock band church, that's just neo-paganism you it's really tough without ever having anyone show it to you and explain it to you say to say look get yeah, this is about sacrifice that's what the mass is good grief that's what's happened to the catholic church the novus ordo church in the last 60 years none of these people running around today who are ethnically catholic who have been born and raised in catholicism have any clue that the mass is a sacrifice they have no idea it's completely lost. And, you know, don't feel bad about that because look, our Lord, what did he do? The morning after his resurrection, he meets um, a couple of his guys on the road to Emmaus. And what does he do? He explains everything to them. Um, who was it? It's the Ethiopian that said to St. Philip, hey, yeah, I've got this scripture and I can read it, but how do I know, if, know what it means if no one explains it to me? And so St. Philip 
explained everything to the Ethiopian. Yes, there are things about this that are just, that are not intuitive. And in retrospect, I could just kick myself and you feel dumb. You're like, well, there it is right there. And, you know, obviously reading the Old Testament is just, it's just being beaten over the head with Catholicism. I mean, there it is. This is the prefigurement. This is what everything is building up towards. And now, you know, our Lord's incarnation, his passion, death and resurrection happens. Pentecost happens. Boom. Here we are. Here's the church. It's fulfilled. It's done. Um, so yeah, in retrospect, you feel dumb, but don't just, (laughs) you do need, you do need someone to explain these things to you. Well, it reminds me in a sense, as you're describing this, that reading through the, the, uh, scriptures, you know, the lightweight scriptures, you're you're missing six books. But reading through the scriptures, it, it, in a way, it's it's an analog of the traditional trivium education, grammar, rhetoric, logic, where you one, one of the hallmarks of that educational model is you memorize, 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 and you pack your brain with facts. And as you get into the later uh, years, where you where, where or into teenage or into near adult ages, where the, where the mind develops logical faculties, and you begin to then learn how to analyze the knowledge you have, you can call back on that massive store of information that you have memorized by rote in earlier years, and begin to now exercise your logical processing on that information you have. So in, in, in your case, it sounds like you had at least a memorized or familiarity with, with the scriptures, even though it didn't jump out at you at the time that you understood what it meant. At some point later, it all came back in retrospect, hey, this makes sense now. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I can tell you exactly what that moment was. Um, so long well, story that, short. That gets into my next question. That at some point while you're in Denver um, and you're in this process of conversion, what was the exact moment when you realized, I've got to become Catholic? Mm, I don't know if there, I don't think I can pinpoint an exact moment, Um, but it was just it, it grew and grew and grew into a profound sense of disobedience. And the, what I call it, what I call that phase, and what I call myself now as a convert is that I'm, I'm a Kennedy convert. So this reading phase goes on for, goodness, um, five, six, seven, seven years at least. And what I would do is I would get up and, you know, Amazon had just become a thing. And pretty much every day, I would be on Amazon ordering books to where I started making the joke that, you know, if they didn't, if they didn't get an order from me by noon that, you know, I'd get a phone call asking if I was okay. It was almost that bad. Um, and I ended up with a very big library. And if anybody ever wants to see <laughs> what's <laughs> where my library ended up, why you just go to the FSSP parish in Denver, because um, when I left, I gave them basically my entire library. So you can go to that parish and go to their library and you will find in their library hundreds of titles with my nameplate inside the front cover, Ex Libris and Barnhart with my signature. So fun, fun little thing. And I've, I've had people send me emails and say, you won't believe this. I was just reading one of your old books. I was in Denver and da, 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 da. And yeah, they're totally there. Um, so Bought a lot of books, reading, reading, reading. Oh, I'm a Kennedy Catholic. So this this sense that this is true and this is real. And then, you know, once once you hit the real presence um, of our Lord in the Eucharist 
and you read and you become convicted of this and you, you start saying, well, yeah, that's true. It makes everything else make sense. And it's the most incredible thing I've ever heard in my life that, that God is physically substantially present and that beyond that, when you when we receive Holy Communion, we're, we're actually consuming him into our bodies. That That's the most incredible thing I've ever heard. You start reading the apologetics and you see now, like you just said, super nerd, okay, all of this, you know, I'm not going to say I, I do not have a photographic memory. I obviously do not have the Bible memorized. But if you've read it four times, I mean, you know, when something pops up, you recognize it and you remember it. So you start reading about, you know, um, apologetics with regards to the real presence of the Eucharist, and you can look back at all these citations in the Old Testament, you realize that the Eucharist is absolutely everywhere. It is everywhere in the Old Testament. Um, But I'm a Kennedy Catholic. What does that mean? Becoming more and more and more convicted until I'm I'm finally convinced that, yeah, I I think this is it. I think this is it. Even though they've got all these gay priests and they've got this problem, I I think this is it. And then I would say to myself, but you know what? Man, the Kennedys are Catholic. Uh, this, this can't be right. I, I, I better read some more. I better read some more. That gets into my next question. Presumably there was some point where you were favorable to becoming Catholic, but there was a stumbling block or two that you were having a trouble getting past. What were those? Um, stumbling blocks for me, uh, Mary was not a big deal for most people. It's either it's Mary or Peter. And I was a Peter. Peter was the last thing for me. Um, so reading, reading, reading Kennedy Catholic skeptical about because scandalized by the Kennedys get down to the point to the really the last thing, ironically, now considering what what it is that it turns out this bizarre phase in my life is all about is defending Peter and defending the Petrine Sea from an anti-pope and and doing all these things that I'm doing. It's just it's absolutely unbelievable because for me, Peter was the last thing Um, skeptical about I was skeptical, obviously, about, you know, power being concentrated in one man's hands like that. Um, understood the argument that this is a supernatural, you know, this, this is a juridical office. It has supernatural protection. It's completely unique, but still just really skeptical about this. And, um, the old timer who taught me the cattle business at this point, I had met up with the old timer who taught me the cattle business. And what I was doing was I was commuting down to, um, they lived, uh, West of Dallas. So I was commuting down many weekends to Dallas and spending the weekends with, um, he and his wife getting, you know, getting taught really the cattle business. Now he's an atheist. He is a openly or was, he's since passed away. He's openly professed atheist. And we're sitting around in the house one night after dinner talking, and he's holding forth on the subject of human resource management and as it relates to running a feed yard. Okay. Sounds like a pretty off the wall subject relative to Catholicism. And he said, he was, he was sitting there talking and he said, look, that was, he would, he, when he was making a point, that's what he would say. He would either say, look, or he would say, the thing of it is. But in this case, he said, 
look, whenever you have a group of people getting together to do anything, whether it's run a feedlot or run a, a comp, any sort of a, an office, absolutely anything. We have any sort of a group of people getting together to do something. Somebody has got to be in charge. And I was sitting there on the sofa and I remember I was wearing, I was wearing my denim overalls and he said that and it was just boing, Peter, there it is. Of course, that's exactly right. Someone does have to be in charge. The buck does have to stop with someone. When you have a group of people getting together to do anything, someone has to be in charge. And of course, our Lord would set up his, his earthly church militant with that structure precisely so that there would not be this abject chaos. And in order for this to work, because the church is to, the, to a man filled with sinners, there has to be in this one and only case a supernatural protection that is bestowed upon this juridical office of the church militant on earth so that there won't be chaos and there won't be, you know, what we're seeing now. And that, that was it. I was sold. I was done. And so then, um, at that point, right after that, I opened my own firm. I opened Barnhart Capital Management and the first day of work, and I did the whole thing. I opened Barnhart Capital Management on January 1. And of course, January 1 is a holiday. The markets are closed. So first day of work in my office in the Denver Tech Center. I, had a, I got myself a beautiful office space um, up on the top floor of a 15-story building with absolutely panoramic views of the entire front range. And the first thing that I did the first morning that I went into my own office and my own brokerage firm, my own company, the first thing that I did was I looked up and found the phone number of the, um, the Catholic parish that had just been built, um, where I lived kind of out East on the East side of Denver out in Aurora. And, um, I looked up the phone number and then of course I had to wait because, you know, brokerage, you start early, you start at, you know, 630 in the morning. Um, but I had to wait until, until the, someone was in the office at that, at that church, at that parish. And that morning I called and made inquiries about how do I convert to Catholicism? And that I was told, well, we're right in the middle of the, we're right in the middle of the RCIA program right now. So you would need to start this coming fall which is kind of a problem. One of the many, many problems with our CIA is answers like that. But I said, you know, I was docile and, and obedient, believe it or not. And I said, okay, very good. And the woman took my name and my phone number. And um, yeah, then I started our CIA that coming fall. Now, a wise friend of mine told me that when a non-Catholic makes the commitment to become Catholic, they will suddenly experience a manifestation of Satan's anger at them in many various ways. And those who aren't warned about this can easily lose the faith or abandon the journey. Did you experience this? Yes, and, and absolutely. And so how did you persevere? 
Um, well, you know, <laughs> adoration and, and going to mass. Um, yeah, I, for me, let's see, I'm received in the church Easter vigil of 2007. Um, business was just booming, 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 booming. 2008 was just a huge year for me. Um, in 2008, I had, I believe I had six large feedlots on my books. It was to the point where, um, I was, I was selectively turning new, new accounts away. I was just saying, well, we, you know, me and my secretaries, we, we, there, there just isn't enough of us here to stay on top of all of this. And we should probably slow down and, and be pretty selective about new accounts we open up. In all of my years in business, from the time that I had my own firm and then back before when I was working out of a corporate office, um, I only had one bad client. But boy, the one bad client that snuck snuck under my radar, um, he showed up in uh, the spring of 2008. And long story short, guy's a just just a loser out of California, um, heir inherited a, um, inherited a feed yard and was just a jerk. And, but you know, it was nice to me at the beginning propositioned me, propositioned me. And, you know, when I of course told him no, um, and he had big positions on, um, long story short without getting into details, cause this is a whole nother deal. And I've never actually talked about this publicly before. He sued me. He sued me. And so that was, that was, I think, what I would consider to be the the big manifestation, the big manifestation. And then that happened and, you know, lost lost some friendships over that. Uh, it was pretty bad. It was pretty bad. Um, but, you know, you just that doesn't have that doesn't have anything to do with our Lord, you know, and the thing that I've always been aware of and, you know, more and more so as time goes on and more bad things happen is that when when the devil says I'm I'm going to do this and such to her let's let's put it in the context of me I'm going to do this and such to her our lord is on the other side of that saying you go ahead because I'm going to be right there with her you you do that you you try it you try it lucifer you try it there is nothing that you can throw at her that she can't handle because I'm going to be right there with her. And when you stop and think about that, that's a, that's a pretty remarkable thing <laughs> to put it, to put it mildly, um, to think that our Lord loves us that much and, and how truly present he is in our lives and how, yeah, I mean, th- there is absolutely nothing that our Lord in his divine providence will permit to happen to you that you cannot handle, not because of your own strength, but precisely because he's going to be right there with you. So yeah, we're all called to take up our crosses. And let, as, as Simon, of, the, Simon of Cyrene helped our Lord carry his cross, when we have to take up our crosses and these things happen to us, guess who our Simon of Cyrene is? It's God himself. It's our Lord himself who comes running in and helps us carry the cross to our Calvary. And when you realize that, you realize, well, 
it almost becomes in a very strange way, it becomes very flattering. It becomes very flattering. Because when you look back at your life and you say, oh, my goodness, these things happened to me, and it was just so terrible. And then you realize, wow, it's it's almost like that story of the footsteps in the sand, which I always considered to be so syrup, syrupy, yes. sentimental. But there there Cloying, is an element yes. of truth to it. Yes, yes, the one the one set of footprints. It's because I was carrying you. Well, indeed, that's absolutely the case. So, it, and then what that does is it gives you the freedom from fear. That's why our Lord is always saying, "Be not afraid. Be not afraid. Be not afraid." Well, of course, you don't have to be afraid. Nothing can happen to you that He's not going to be there to help you get through. And if if you fail, it will be completely on you. It will be because even though He's there helping you. You, you just throw the cross down and you run in the opposite direction. That's the only way. It's always your choice. Um, and so the, the weirder and or the more painful and awful things are, in a weird sense, you should almost be flattered um, because you know that, that our Lord has said, she, she can handle this and I, and I will personally see to it that he or she can handle this. So yeah, if you if you enter the church, yeah, or revert, yes, you can expect things to get real. But I mean, come on, at this point, looking at at what's happening and the collapse, um, both in the church and and in you know the secular realm and everything, as I've been talking about now for years, we should all be mentally prepared for intense physical suffering. We should be mentally prepared for being executed, um, hot war. We should all be mentally preparing for things like this. And sure enough, now we see these things potentially starting to unfold where we see, we see the institutional church or what can be called the anti-church uh, which has been subsisting in the same liturgical, juridical, and sacramental space as the one true church, we now see it completely manifesting and, you know, manifesting in its, in its satanic, in its, all of its satanic misery. Um, and it, it's, people are now realizing that, yeah, this could get to the point where it, it's going to be very difficult to find a mass to go to. And then looking at potential societal collapses, looking at, you know, with places like Venezuela, South Africa as, as real time models of what that could potentially look like. If, if, you know, the worst case scenarios happen in, on the North American continent, I mean, it's going to make Venezuela and, and South Africa look like a cakewalk. Um, but we should all be mentally prepared for this. And as our Lord says, if you really love him, be not afraid. What is the worst thing that can happen to you? Torture, which which will end at some point. You will die at some point. It will end. And, and then what? Well, if you die in friendship with our Lord, presumably purgation and then the beatific vision for all eternity. What are you afraid of? Really, what are you afraid of? Well, I'm afraid we're out of time for now for part one. There will be a part two. So if you have questions and you would like Anne to answer those on um, how she continued her conversion story and how things are, are going now, send those to podcast at barnhart.biz. And on behalf of Anne, thank you to all of the donors and benefactors, um, especially heartfelt thank you from me to all of the uh, donors and benefactors of Super Nerd Media and especially Tiny Princess. It's been a rough week, and I'm sure we'll talk about that a lot more in episode 70. Uh, and until then, take care. <laughs>